Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. 2020 got us so down that it can be hard to see any good ahead. But there are better days to come. And even if we can't imagine a bright future, God can. This could be our best year ever. So look up. There's good news for 2021. To get ready for this message, I want you to think about a word. And that word is despair. I start here because, frankly, so many people I listen to today, when I, when I hear them, I recognize they're on the point of despair. Despair is, is worse than being discouraged. You know, when you, think, when you think about 2020, a lot of people were discouraged by 2020. And I think when 2020 was over, a lot of people thought, well, it's going to be like the all clear after a tornado siren, but I wish I could find the person who said, it can't get any worse than this. So when we were discouraged in 2020, now I think with the events of 2021, a lot of us are close to despair. Despair is worse than discouragement because discouragement passes. Despair is even worse than defeat because God has wired, he's hardwired resilience into the human spirit. And when we suffer defeat, we tend to get up, dust off our britches and get back into the game. But despair is different. Despair means it's hopeless. Despair says I give up. Despair says, I quit. I've had enough. Well, if anyone is out there today, whether you're here on campus at New Spring or you're at home watching this, if anyone out there is looking at the landscape of 2021 and wondering if it might not just be hopeless, this message is for you. God gave me the series Look Up back in November. But as we got closer to the, to the new year and we got into 2021, our team that's worked with me to get, to get ready for this series. Our team has just been convinced that this was God's series for this hour. And I have to tell you that I can refine that vision to say that I feel like this message is a word from God for this week. With what we've been through and what we're going through and the turmoil that we all feel, I feel like this is a message from God. I'm just a letter carrier I need this message as much as anybody today. Our series is called Look Up, and each week we're having a look up verse in the Bible because the Bible tells us time after time to look up. I mean, if you ever are into prophecy, a lot of people are asking me, do you feel like what's going on has prophetic significance? The answer is yes, yes, and yes. And for the next two weeks, after this week, I'm going to be talking about prophecy. And those of you who know your Bibles, you knew I was going to go here. Jesus said, when you see this stuff begin to happen, lift up your heads, your redemption is drawing nigh. I'm going to talk the next two weeks about that. But today I'm going to give you my favorite, favorite look up verse in the Bible. And it comes from my favorite Psalm, Psalm 3. And it's going to mean a whole lot to us when we finally get to it, but it'll only mean what it can if you allow me the time to have the backstory talked about. Psalms is the biggest book in the Bible. There are 150 chapters in the book of Psalms. It's right in the middle of your Bible. And the word psalm means song. Some of you like to journal. 
Journaling is good. I, I have ADD, so it's hard for me to journal, but a lot of you love to journal because when you journal, you talk about what's going on in your life that day, and if you're a God follower, you talk about what God is teaching you through the stuff that's going on, and you like to journal. Well, if, if I could tell you in modern terms what the book of Psalms is, these are, these are journaling psalms or journaling songs. And just like if, you, if I could look into your playlist, it would, it would probably be like my playlist of songs. It's pretty diverse, isn't it? And just like that, the, the songs, the psalms in the Bible are, are different. A lot of the psalms are what we call praise psalms. These are psalms that give praise and glory to God. There are a number of psalms that we call messianic psalms, and these are probably my favorite because psalms are written somewhere between 900 and 1,000 years before Jesus was born, and yet a lot of the psalms talk directly about Jesus. I mean, the most famous psalm is Psalm 23. Do you know that Psalm 23 is right in the middle of a trilogy of messianic psalms? It's true. Psalm 22, one of the most graphic depictions of crucifixion you'll ever find. <laughs> and it was written 300 years before the Carthaginians invented crucifixion. The psalmist would write, they pierced my hands and my feet. And my bones are all out of joint as one who hung on a cross would, would have that situation. Psalm 24, open the gates and let the king of glory come in. That's the resurrection. And right in the middle of Psalm 23, yea, though I'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. So there are praise songs and there are messianic songs. Some of the psalms we call traveling songs. But quite a few of the psalms, well, the theological nomenclature calls them lament psalms, L-A-M-E-N-T, lament. I guess if we were to give them modern terminology, we would say these are blues songs. Lament means crying. So really what these songs are are crying songs. These are, these are songs that are written with tears. Psalm 3, my favorite psalm, is one of those crying songs. Now for the backstory. David, at this point in his life, is the lion in winter. He's in late middle age. A lot of you have you've heard about David. You've, you've heard about his stories, especially if you grew up in Sunday school. You heard about the exploits of David. And for most of his young life, even into early middle age, he led a charmed life. He killed a giant when he was a teenager that made him a national hero. And in his late teens and early 20s, he rose through the ranks and became the commander of all the military of Israel. But his success, God's hand was on him, his success caused his king to get crazy mad, crazy angry, and the king was actually trying to kill David. But God got him out, out of scrape after scrape, and you can read about it in the book of 1 Samuel. I mean, Saul was trying to kill him, and David was running for his life, but every time David came out of a scrape, he came out stronger than he went in. A lot of you new springers are in, in the business world. You're in the corporate world, or you're in the entertainment world, and you understand the importance of the it factor, magnetism. You know, many of you have that it about you, that magnetism that people just want to be with you. They, they want to hang with you. They want to, they want to chunk of your world. You don't, you, don't, you don't even understand why it works for you. You just know that you attract people and you attract people that want to help you. That's that magnetism that God gives as a gift. And David had that in spades. I mean, people wanted to be with him. And he was especially known for his pristine reputation. File that away. Because even when his king tried to kill him, David would not retaliate. When he was about 30, he became king. 
And he led his nation from success to success until his nation was the only superpower on the planet. And did I mention that God loved this guy? I mean, think about what God said about David to Samuel when he was explaining to Samuel why he wanted David to be the next king. God said to Samuel, I have found a man after my own heart. Well, that's something big to have said about you by God. God would call David the apple of my eye. And when Jesus came to earth, he called himself the son of David. And one day God said to David, when he's king, I'm going to build a dynasty out of your house and there will be a descendant of yours on the throne of Israel forever. Which is why when you open the gospels and you read Matthew and Luke, you will discover a couple of genealogies of Jesus that point back to King David. It is interesting. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy are just a little different. Luke's genealogy is the genealogy of Mary. Mary is the natural parent of Jesus, the natural biological parent of Jesus. And if you'll look at that genealogy, it goes back through David's son, Nathan. But if you go to Matthew, you'll find Joseph's genealogy because he was the Even though he was not the biological father, he was the father of record. And Joseph's genealogy, too, goes back through the lineage of David through his son Solomon. So when I started the sermon today talking about despair, some of you are sitting out there wondering, how how could somebody like David ever be in despair? Life changes, doesn't it? Things happen, and life changes. I don't even know, I can, I can guess, but I have no idea what happened. Something snapped in David when he was in middle age and he took a wrong turn, a real bad wrong turn. Do you know, here's an axiom for living. If you stop doing what you do, you may stop being who you are. David's about to do something out of character and it all stops, starts with him stopping doing what he does. David is a warrior king. But after all this success, one day, I don't know if it was recommended by his generals. I don't know if he decided or not. But somebody just said to David, why don't you stay home this campaign? You're so valuable. Why don't you stay home and rest? We'll go out and we'll take care of things. So David is up on top of the palace, bored out of his brains. I don't think he intended to get in a lot of trouble, but it is strange. When we take one wrong turn, oftentimes if we're stubborn about that wrong turn, it leads to a series of wrong turns, and it's really amazing how far away we can get. David sees his neighbor naked, Bathsheba. She's taking a bath. Now, don't blame Bathsheba for this. Because in those days, the houses were built in such a fashion where there was a bath in the middle of the house that didn't have a a roof on it. And from street level, you couldn't see into someone's bath. But where David was, he could see. And he should have known that that was a possibility. And hey, we all see things we shouldn't see. And if you just at that moment turn away and move on, it's okay. But David didn't turn away. He just stayed focused on his naked neighbor while she was taking a bath. And one thing led to another, and David got her into the palace. Wish I didn't have to say it this bluntly, but he wound up having sex with her. Hey, you know what? In David's mind, it was not a problem because her husband was one of his trusted commanders. He was on the military campaign. He was in the field. Nobody's ever going to know about this. It's just a little fun in the afternoon. It was until Bathsheba sent a text to David that said, I'm pregnant. 
But David, hey, this is not the first scrape he's been in. It's the first one of this kind. But David's used to fixing things, and he's saying to himself, I know how to fix this. I'll just get her husband to come home for a little R&R, and he'll go home, and nature will take its course, and everybody will just assume that the baby is Uriah's. But Uriah's a noble man. In fact, at this moment, the lowness of David's character and the nobility of Uriah is seen by strong contradistinction. Uriah, he's a Marine. His, his buddies are out there in the field. He's not going to go home and enjoy R&R while his buddies are out in the field. I mean, he's been asked to come home and pick up a message, and so he's going to sleep at the palace until he gets his message and then go back into the field, and then David realizes his cover-up is not going to work. And if you thought David's actions were bad enough, what happens next is unthinkable. David says to himself, the only way this is going to work is if I get rid of Uriah. And he writes a message to the commander saying, put Uriah in the front of the battle where he was sure to be killed. David seals up the envelope and hands it to Uriah. And Uriah, noble as he was, never looked at the message, went to his commander and delivered his own death warrant. And Uriah is in the front of the battle and he gets killed. David's commander in chief, Joab, is puzzled by all this strange stuff. He's nervous that he let Uriah get killed. So he sends back a message to David saying, Uriah is dead. And David says one of the coldest things you'll ever find any human being saying. Basically, David said, people die. Maybe this is a good time to stop the sermon for a moment and talk about something. Even the best people in the world have a dark side. You and me. The Bible calls it the flesh. It's the old nature that we inherit from Adam. And it's bent toward doing wrong. It's predisposed toward doing wrong. And you're going to have that nature until you die or until Jesus comes for you. This is why the Bible says that if we live until the rapture, we have to be changed. We can't go to heaven like we are because we still have this dark side. Now, when you accept Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in. And now you've got a real situation going on. You've got this constant headbutting between the old you and the new you. But this is why some of you are Christ followers and stuff comes up in your life and you can't believe what you do. You can't believe what you find yourself saying. You can't even believe what you find yourself thinking. And here's the thing you say to yourself, how can I really be God's daughter? How can I really be God's son and have this kind of thought? It's because we all have a, we have a dark side. And all it takes is a little carelessness, a little acceptance of something we know is wrong, or as in David's case, a little distraction from following God, and you have no idea how far, you have no idea how far you or I could go. We don't know what's inside of us. That's why the word of God says that the human heart is desperately sick. Peter was writing to believers. He's not writing to, he's not writing to non-believers. He's writing to believers. He said, stay alert and watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around looking like a roaring lion looking for someone to, look at this word, devour. In other words, Satan is looking at you. He's looking at your marriage. He's looking at your family. He's looking at you and he's wondering, what could he do? What could he put out there to lure you into destroying yourself? In 2020, the Christian world was rocked one more time by scandals. Sometimes I just feel like I have my insides pulled out of me when I see the things that Christian leaders do. This year, there was someone I really looked up to, 
Someone who's helped me immensely, who fell deep into a scandal. And I was amazed at how quickly people on social media were to call him a fraud. We live in the age of cancel culture. We live in the age of cancel culture where if someone does something wrong, they just don't exist anymore. We throw them away as a human being. I know I, know I say this often, but one of the things that amazes me about this supremely dysfunctional culture. You and I live in the most dysfunctional culture in the history of mankind. Morally depraved, beyond belief. And yet it's the most judgmental culture I've ever, I've ever seen or even read about. I mean, how many times do we hear people say, well, I don't judge. I think this is the most judgmental culture in the history of mankind. There's this weird sort of moral superiority from people that aren't remotely morally superior that just cancels and throws people away. You and I need to remember that good people can do bad things. Safe people can do unsafe things. People that God loves and blesses and uses to bless others can do some very bad things. Now, I want to be clear on something. It doesn't mean they get a pass from suffering the consequences of those choices. Suffer? David did. I mean, we're going to be talking about how he got into despair. His life took a really bad turn. That charm turn, uh, that charm life of blessing turns sour and bad things begin to happen. Just give me a little bit more time to get to Psalm 3. I mean, when, when all this stuff went south, David thought, well, maybe one thing good's going to come out of this. We have a baby coming. You know, David married Bathsheba. And, and you know what? He covered it up pretty good at first. And a lot of people in the town thought, isn't that cool? The king is marrying that war widow. And she was going to have a baby. And, and, and David, wonderful. David thought, well, we're going to have a baby. Maybe the baby's going to be a good thing. But unfortunately, the baby didn't survive. Let me just talk a little bit more about one of David's issues. David was not a particularly good parent. His daughters turned out pretty good. But his sons were a mess, with maybe the exception of Solomon. I mean, David's sons grew up entitled. I mean, David had had a hard upbringing. He was a shepherd and a military guy, and he'd been through a lot of tough stuff. And David was one of those parents that said, you know, I had a hard time with growing up, and I had a lot of hard things, but my kids are going to have it way better than I had it. So basically, he never told his sons no. He never corrected them. He never asked them why they did crazy stuff. They just grew up young, you know, wearing cool clothes and driving Ferraris. He also married a lot of women, so there was a lot of complication in the family. There were half-brothers and half-sisters and full-brothers and full-sisters. And, and so after David had his situation, where clearly they watched their daddy see something he wanted and take it, the crown prince Amnon, David's oldest son, sorry, I wish I could find an easy way to say this, sexually assaulted his half-sister. David should have done something about it, but he never corrects anything with his kids. He's angry about it, but he just lets it go. This girl has a full brother who is David's favorite kid. His name is Absalom. And Absalom's just watching this thing. He's waiting to see what his dad does about what happened to his sister. And David didn't do anything about it. So one day, Absalom sees Amnon in a, in a vulnerable spot. You can read about this in 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel. And he kills his brother. David really doesn't do anything about that. Absalom runs for his life, and he's... He's living with his maternal grandfather for a few years. And after a while, David allows Absalom to come back. But it's kind of a half solution. He won't speak to him. But he lets him come back to the country. And as I said a few moments ago, 
Absalom is a, he's a problem kid. Thank you for being patient. We're getting close. David has another catastrophe coming. Absalom, he starts kissing up to the people without David knowing about it. When the people would come to the palace to present their situation, they had some sort of grievance. Absalom would meet them before they got to the palace and he would bow down. He would kiss up to them literally. And he would say this to him, you know, it's too bad you don't have a king who, my dad's not going to listen to you and give you a fair judgment. But oh, if I were king, I would, when politicians understand this, if I were king, I would give you what you want. And the Bible simply says he stole the hearts away of the people. David has no idea what's going on until it becomes very clear that he has a revolution on his hands. And Absalom, his favorite kid, Absalom is leading the revolution. And David and his soldiers, what he has left, they have to slink out of Jerusalem in the dead of night. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, why doesn't David just stand up to him? Well, David obviously could have easily overwhelmed Absalom and his army, but think about what would have happened. Number one, he would have killed his own son, and on top of that, he would have had to declare war on his own people in his own city. So David's just going to slink out of town, and really, New Spring, he's just going to wait for this thing to fizzle. And it would fizzle. Absalom was no soldier. He was more of a playboy. He was more worried about his hair than he was anything else. And you think I'm kidding. Look at this. Absalom was the most handsome man in all Israel. He was flawless from head to foot. He cut his hair only once a year and then only because it was so heavy. When he weighed it out, it came to five pounds. Who weighs the hair that they cut off their head unless they're trying to sell it? This kid really poses no threat to David. But then David gets the gut punch. If you read this in 2 Samuel 15, 31, it just simply says this. He, David was told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators. Why, why do I say that's a gut punch? Ahithophel was David's best friend. Ahithophel was David's most trusted counselor. The Bible says that Ahithophel's advice was like the advice of God. When David was holding a cabinet meeting, he would get advice from all of his top leaders. And then he would say, okay, everybody out of the room except Ahithophel. And then he would say to Ahithophel, my best friend, what do you think we ought to do? It was unimaginable to David that his best friend and his top advisor, the person that he expected to be at his right hand, would, would be with Absalom and telling Absalom, here's how to kill your daddy. And here's David's issue. Absalom is not trouble. Absalom, with Ahithophel's advice, was dangerous. You know, when I was a young minister and I was talking about these things, I always wonder, why was it that Ahithophel changed? But you know those genealogies in the Bible where somebody is somebody's parent and somebody's parent and somebody's parent, all that stuff we skip in the Bible? I was reading through that one day, and then the light went on when I realized Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. Now you get it? Day after day, it had to grind on Ahithophel that he was coming in to give advice to the man who had done what he did to his granddaughter. David has one more indignity. As he and his soldiers slink out of town, forgive me for time out. How many of you have been 
up in life and then you go through a real down season and maybe some people that don't like you, they didn't say anything to you when you were riding high, but when you're down, they, kick, they see their opportunity to kick you. And there's this dude named Shimei who lived outside of town who hated David. And when Shimei sees David and his soldiers slink out of town, Shimei starts cursing David and calling him all kinds of bad names. And just so that you'll know where David's emotional state was, one of David's soldiers said, let me go over and whack that guy. And David said, no, leave him alone. Maybe, maybe God has told him to curse me. We're getting close now. The Bible says in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, David walked up the road to the Mount of Olives weeping as he went. And the people who were with him wept as they climbed the hill. Then the king and all the people with him arrived at their destination, exhausted. Thank you. You've been very polite in letting me set this up. But I took that time for a couple of reasons. Number one, I wanted you to know that the heroes in the Bible had the same kind of junk in their lives that you and I have. And then secondly, of course, I want you to know what's behind my favorite psalm, the one we're about to read. But before I read it, let's, let's take a subtotal here. Let's talk about David's situation. Good choices and bad choices. How many of us resonate with that? I've done some good stuff and some crazy stuff. Good choices, bad choices. God's blessing and God's judgment. Stuff that people had done to David and stuff that he'd done to himself. And then just events. As I was writing this message a week or so ago, I tried to find out what words could I use to explain David's life at this point. And here are the words that I came up with. Tangled mess. He's like a hitchhiker in a hailstorm. He can't run, he can't hide, and he can't make it stop. And he's cried. His people are crying. That night, David walks into his tent and sits down. With tears streaming down his face, he reaches for a pen and something to write on. And he begins to write Psalm 3. Oh, Lord, I have so many enemies. Read that problems. The operative words, there are so many. David, David was used to trouble. I mean, David was comfortable with a certain amount of trouble. And I think he would have said, Lord, I could deal with some of my enemies, but I have so many problems. Like some of you are watching this message and you're like, if I just had trouble at work, I maybe could handle that. But I've got trouble at work and trouble with my marriage and one of my kids is going off the rails. And then there's this health thing that I'm waiting to get an answer on. Lord, if I just have one problem, but oh Lord, I have so many problems. And then he said, there are so many that, that hate me. There's so many that rise up against me. And this next line is one of the most painful lines you'll ever see in the Bible. And it's, it just breaks my heart every time I read it. David said, many are they that say of me, there is no help for him in God. 
David had been the Teflon king. I mean, God had got him after scrape after scrape. But now this cancel culture that felt this moral superiority, they were not only rising up against David and hating David, they basically said, God is not going to help him this time. He's such a hypocrite that God won't even do anything for him. And now I just want to make a point. There, there was a legitimate, I mean, they could have legitimately criticized David for what he did. They could have said it was wrong for David to do what he did. And they would have been right. They could have said God is dealing with him and bringing judgment into his life for what he did. They still would have been right, but they crossed the line when they said God won't help him this time. That was not in their purview. And I would just say this to our cancel culture today, whether it's on the left or on the right, we need to be careful to make sure that we, the Bible tells us we reap what we, what we sow. We don't want God to cancel us. David had said, I have so many problems and there's so many people against me and there are those who are saying, God won't help him this time. When I was studying this psalm, the people who are experts in studying the psalms through the centuries wrote that there is a massive shift of thought between verse 2 and verse 3 that I'm about to read to you. And I was trying to figure out how to explain it to you. And I never could find the exact words. I'd already written the sermon. I kept thinking, how do I explain to you how that in verse 1 and 2, David is saying, I've got so many problems with so many people who hate me. And there are people that are saying, God won't help him this time. Shift. How do I communicate that? I'd already finished the sermon and I was reading it again. And I was looking at the Psalms. And in the older translations, there's a word there, a Hebrew word that you may have come across reading the Psalms. It's the word selah or selah. There are no audio recordings of 1,000 B.C., so we don't know how they were pronounced. When I was in college, I was taught that sila means stop and think about this for a moment. I guess it could mean that by extension, but that's not what it means. Best Hebrew scholarship, it means, says they say it could mean a couple of things. It could mean the instruments stop and play for a while. Or the best Hebrew scholarship says it means an intensification of the vocal sound and the instrumental sound. I was walking around thinking about that. I'm a musician. I grew up playing brass. I love standing over here by our horn section. I want to talk to all the musicians for a moment. What does that make you think about? A major shift and an intensification of the vocals and the instrumentation. Well, Think about one of the prime tools of someone who is orchestrating or arranging. What do you do if you're arranging a piece of music and you want this song to intensify at a particular point? What is it that you do? You modulate, key change. And it hit me, that's what it means. I mean, David is like in this minor key. I mean, he's like, oh God, I have so many enemies and there's so many people that hate me. And they're even saying, you're not gonna help me this time. But I don't wanna stay in this key anymore. I need to have a key change. I need to have a major shift. I need to go from G to A flat here. And then he says, but you, O Lord. All of a sudden his focus is not on his problems anymore. As the tears are still streaming down his cheeks, he said, God, I'm tired of looking down and looking around and seeing all the things that are wrong. I need a shift. I need a key change. But you, O oh Lord, David was saying, I'm tired of talking about me. I'm tired of talking about this mess I'm in. Enough talking about the mess that I've made. I'm finished talking about what people have done to me. I'm sick of talking about what they're saying behind my back. But you, O oh Lord, you, O oh Lord, 
I'm talking to a lot of Christ followers, and you're looking around and you're saying, oh God, there's so many problems out there, and I understand the key that you're in, but we need a key change. I mean, we hear about sea changes. We need a key change to remember that there is a God in heaven. There is a God who has more power than any entity in this world, and he is our God, and he's there, and he's available to help us. But you, oh Lord, now don't get me wrong. David is still dealing with the consequences of his choices. And he's not saying his choices didn't matter. And he's not saying that he didn't deserve the trouble that he's in. Oh, New Spring, if you ever listen to a preacher, listen to me right now. David understands something about grace that so few of us understand. David understands this about grace. Our failures don't change who God is. Could I say that one more time? Our failures don't change who God is. Our sins don't render God helpless. The fact that we come up short doesn't mean that God comes up short. And when our lives are a tangled mess, it doesn't mean that God walks away from his children and pretends that he does not know them anymore. Our sins do not change who God is in heaven. You say, Mark, I don't know if I believe that or not. Well, then just take the word of God. In the book of 2 Timothy, one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, the 13th verse says, if we are not faithful, he will still be faithful. He cannot, Christ cannot deny who he is. On the day that we're less than we should be, he is everything he ever was. On the day when we can't rise to the level that we need to rise to, he rises to levels that we can't even dream of. David is like, oh yeah, it's true, oh God. That old key I was in, it's true. I have so many problems. There's so many who hate my guts. And they're saying, God won't even help him this time. Key change. But you, oh Lord, you, oh Lord, are a shield for me. You know what a shield is? Think about this for a moment. What does a shield do? It absorbs the damage that was intended for the soldier. Oh, please, could I just share my heart? I'm so brokenhearted by the way people talk to people. I'm brokenhearted by the way Christians are talking to each other. Social media, so much rage out there. You know what? Satan's got to be laughing all the way to the bank. The Bible tells us that our enemies are never people. It's not people that hurl the fiery darts. It's Satan that hurled the fiery darts. Even if you have people who are out to get you, people who hate your point of view, you remember this, they are victims of the enemy too. It's Satan that's hurling the darts. And if he can ever get us fighting people instead of fighting him, he's got us right where he wants us. But you, oh Lord, are a shield for me. And then here's the line that caused me to write and give you this message. David said, you are the lifter of my head. What's the universal sign of despair? You know, when we get discouraged, our head sinks, but then we pick it back up. And when we go through a defeat, the head sinks, but we get back up. But in despair, your head sinks and you can't pull it back up. I've watched sometimes when a child will despair, but that head sunk down and the mother will reach down and cradle his face in her hands and lift up the child's face. As pastor of a church for 44 years, I've been with families who have been with the worst possible news. And there have been times when I've watched a 
a husband and wife, a mother and father, and they just lost a child and just found out about it. And several times I've seen a mother, mother's head sink and I've watched her husband gently cradle her face in his hands and lift up her face and kiss her. That's what David's talking about here. He's like, you're the shield for me. And you absorb the arrows that the devil is shooting at me. And when I can't pick my head up anymore, Lord, you are the lifter of my head. And David said, I cried to you, Lord, and you listened to me. And you heard me from your holy hill. And he said, you know, I'm going to go to sleep tonight because you're going to stay awake and watch for me. And I'm not going to be afraid of 10,000s of soldiers who come after me because winning comes from you. You know, I think about this whole talk today. It all comes down to who you belong to. Because if you're God's child, you'll always be God's child and nothing can ever take you out of his family. And to become part of God's child is not joining a religion. It's not doing a whole bunch of good stuff because we're all flawed, broken sinners. It's a gift. Jesus came into our world, God's son, lived a perfect life. And after he lived that perfect life, he hung on a cross and he paid your debt for your sin and my sin. And then three days later, he walked out of his grave as if God were putting an exclamation point that every promise God made through Jesus is true. And right now, God has an offer on the table. And the offer goes like this. If you'll come just like you are, religion says, straighten your life out and then give it to God. That can never happen. That's why religion's so broken. God says, come like you are. If you come to God like you are, he won't leave you like he found you. And you come flawed and broken. You say, Lord, I need a savior. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins and I believe he arose in the grave and I'm asking him to come into my life and take charge. And he will. He will. Try it and see. I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now. These aren't magic words, but if you're interested in praying this prayer to God, I'll pray it slowly. You can decide if you want to say it, but if you say it from your heart, there's a way big eternal God on the other end and he'll hear your prayer. He knows your name. He knows the number of hairs on your head already. So he, he's used to you, okay? You say, I don't believe in him. It's okay. He knows about you. Dear God, I am a sinner and I'm broken and I can't fix myself, but I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose in the grave. I ask you to forgive me, to be my God. Thank you for hearing my prayer in Jesus' name. Somebody can say, well, Mark, I have no idea. I just prayed with you. I have no idea what happened. I, I know it's a new start. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you a gift. It's just a, a box. It's got a new spring Bible, a little book I wrote that'll answer a lot of questions, just some other cool stuff. By the way, there's a journal in here, I think. We talked about that. So here's all you have to do to get this. If, if you're here on campus today, if you, if you want to, you can just take your phone out and text a word, prayed, P-R-A-Y-A-D to 97,000. Go to any info center. They'll have this ready for you. You say, Mark, I don't have my phone with me. It's okay. Just go back there and say, I prayed with Mark. That'll, that'll do it. They won't bother you. They just want to give this to you. If you're watching online or on television, all you have to do is text prayed to 97,000. There'll be some information fields that come up. You can let us know where you are and we'll get this out to you. Thank you for being here. God bless. Best is yet to come. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.